One of the advantages of 1 John is that John tells us in the letter exactly the reasons why he's writing the letter. And that brings clarity to us and understanding as we study it. And one of the reasons that John clearly tells us for his writing is found in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, These things, the things in the book, I write unto you that you might know that you have eternal life in believing in his name. And so John tells us that his purpose, or at least one of his purposes, is that we would have assurance concerning our salvation, that we would know that we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are in Jesus Christ, that our names are written in heaven, and that that's where we will be one day. And that's part of John's reason. Now, in letting us know that we know that our names are written in heaven, there's a natural consequence that comes with that. And that is that we also can know that we know if our names are not written in heaven. If reading and studying these things can assure us that our hearts are, then tucked in here is also the understanding if, in fact, it is not. And so last week in our Bible study, as we looked at the second half of chapter 2, we looked at deception that comes from the outside. That is false teachers, false leaders, false gospels, false messages that give to us a false sense that we're in a faith that maybe we are not. Deception from the outside. But as we now cross into chapter 3, John talks to us about deception that comes from the inside. That is, it is possible for us to be self-deceived, thinking that we're in the faith when in fact in heaven's record, and from Jesus' perspective, we all together are not. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that in that day, that is the day when all things are reckoned and we stand before him and he hands out rewards and blessings and judgments, he said that many will stand before him and they'll say, Lord, didn't we teach in your name? And didn't we prophesy in the streets and in your name do many wonderful works and cast out demons? And Jesus said that I will say assuredly in that day to many that I never knew you and that you're to depart because you're a worker of iniquity. And so not everyone who simply thinks that they're saved or attends a church service or participates in religious or Christian things is necessarily truly saved. It is possible to be self-deceived into thinking that we are when in fact we are not. And so now John speaks to us concerning that, and he begins it in chapter 3, verse 1, with a call for us to consider. Notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. John writes, and he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John says to us, his listening audience, at the very beginning of this segment, he says, think about the type of love that God has bestowed or given or shed abroad upon us. Think about it. Consider this type of love. Now, that's a tall order for you and I to fulfill. I mean, that's like saying, I want you to think about how much water is in the ocean. How many of you can stand up and declare and give us some kind of a relative understanding of what that means when we talk about the depths of something as vast as the oceans of the world? And John just kind of blankets that out there. And he just says, I want you to think about the type of love that God has had towards us that we should be called the sons of God. And that's incomprehensible. Right there, we could stop and we could spend six or eight or a hundred weeks just exploring what all of that means. Exploring the depths of God's love for us. And of course, we would go to the scriptures like 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient and love is kind. And we would make this nice, neat little definition of love and we would package it in, in our finite understandings and all the rest. But it would tell us what love is, but it wouldn't at all begin to even scratch the surface of what it means that God loves us and that he demonstrated that love in making us his sons. So what does it mean John actually adds to that, he says, that we would be the sons of God. What's behind that? What kind of love does it take for God to make you and I his sons and daughters or part of his adopted family? What manner of love is the love of God toward us? 
Well, a couple of things just for you to think through if we compare Scripture with Scripture. Well, the first thing that we understand about God's love, as we think about it, as John tells us to, is that God's love is infinitely sacrificial. It tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16, a famous verse that many of us know by heart, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now just think about that for one minute, that as a demonstration of God's love, he gave his only begotten son. How would someone with infinite wealth and infinite power demonstrate love to someone else? What gift could someone who has all things and has unlimited resources give that would be an adequate expression of love? There isn't one. It would be very difficult to do. The same goes for someone that has infinite power, that can do all things, that can just speak and things happen. How does someone like that express love? There has to be a finite price for an infinite God. And that comes in the person of his only begotten son. God only has one of those. He has an infinite amount of everything else. And so the Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us by giving us his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it's an expression of his love for him to give up his son for us that we didn't deserve and still yet we can't comprehend it. But it doesn't stop there. Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 32 that he that spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now with him freely give us all things? And so the giving love of God doesn't stop with him just simply giving his son where he says, well, I gave my son for you, and now what else do you want? But rather, the Bible says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain help in our time of need. The Bible says that God is able to make all of his riches abound towards us through the person and name of his son. Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do that the father might be glorified in the son. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Jesus said to him that asks, he will receive. To him that knocks, the door will be opened. And to him that seeks, it will be found. And so God's love doesn't stop with the giving of his son that price that we can never fully comprehend that's where it simply just begins but it's a sacrificial giving of himself for us God's love is infinitely sacrificial on our behalf it's also absolutely unconditional how do we know that God's love is unconditional for us in Romans chapter 5 the apostle Paul is trying to explain to the Christian world what we have now that we are saved, now, now that we belong to him, what is it exactly that we have? And he begins to just list things off. He says that we have access by grace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in tribulation because God's working all things together for the good. The spirit of God has been put in our hearts so that we can know the love of God that he has for us from an internal perspective. And then he says this, Romans chapter 5 Verse 6, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends or demonstrates, shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The thing that demonstrates to us that God's love is unconditional was the timing when he bestowed that love upon us. When was it? It was when we were the furthest from him that we could possibly be. It was when we were in the darkest moment of our, of our existence, when we were absolutely alienated from him in our sin and in our rebellion. It was then that God said, while you're yet far off, that's when I'm going to give you the greatest demonstration of my love, while you're yet in your sins. Now, we would think that if we were good enough, that then maybe God would impart to us the things that we need or, or give us his salvation. Or at least if we put forth our best effort. But God's love towards us is unconditional in that he demonstrated it at the time that we were our weakest and the time that we were the furthest from him. God's love is also fiercely intimate. He's not a God 
that declares his love by the giving of his son and then withdraws and says, now you figure it out and I'll see you when you get here. But the Bible declares very clearly that he knows the number of hairs that are upon our head. That's a number that we don't know and it's a number that changes daily. Which means that God knows us more than or better than we know ourselves and he is intimately aware of every moment that we walk through our day. Because for him to know those numbers of hairs at any given moment means that he has to be very, very near and very concerned with us. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 139, it says that the the thoughts that God thinks towards us outnumber the grains of sand on all the shores of all the oceans of the world. And just think about that for just a moment. That's incomprehensible. That's beyond what you and I could ever even fathom in terms of a number, but yet God has that many thoughts towards each one of us individually. David declared in the same psalm, and he said that he knows our path, and that from the first day of our life all the way to the last, God knows what's going to happen at every minute, every juncture, every moment. He's aware of all things that concern our lives. He is fiercely intimate. And Jesus, when he taught on prayer, he said that the Father already knows the things that you have need of before you even ask. Sometimes we think when we set to pray or we're going to seek God, that we're going to let him in on something that he doesn't already know. Well, I'm going to fast and I'm going to show God how serious I am because his inbox is so full and he's so busy with so many other things that I can't have confidence that he already knows. No, 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 no. He already knows, and he's already willing, but he desires to have fellowship with us and for us to experience the nearness of his presence and see him answer prayer. And so God is so intimate with our lives. He gives us his Holy Spirit that doesn't just walk with us holding our hand, but he now has imparted that his spirit comes inside of us, that we can sense his presence and hear his voice and sense his leading in the things that he does in our lives in a more intimate way than we could ever have with any human being. His love is not only intimate, but it's also uncompromisingly loyal. Notice what John says. He said, consider what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And that's John is sparing words. He's not sexist or bigoted. It means the offspring, that we are his sons and his daughters adopted into his family. Now just think about the relationship between a good father and his child. That's a a relationship that is bound with loyalty. A good father is always going to see to it that he fulfills the role of father to the fullest possible extent in the life of his child. It touches Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that scripture promise that so many of us hold on to and cling to in the dark days of our lives, where God says that he who began a good work in us is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is so loyal in his ownership over us and his nurturing of us and his training of us and his completion and his constancy and his provision, everything that he gives that he will never leave us no matter what. It's a deep love that God has given to us. And that just is the very beginning. We could go on and on and on and talk about the love of God and all that it means and all that it represents. But what John is asking us to consider in this whole thing is that God has invited you and I to have our sins forgiven and to come into a place where we are now adopted by him, we belong to him, and we're in relationship with the living God because of what he did in giving us his son. We're adopted by God. And John says, think about that manner of love. Now, I challenge you to just stop for a minute and just think about what it cost and what it means that you and I belong to the living God. It's an amazing thing that so often we take for granted, don't we? But John says, I want you to think about that and let that thought pervade your being as we move into what he's about to say next. If we are the sons and daughters of the living God, then that means something. It isn't just that we have a name tag or we attend a church or that our name is written somewhere and whatever, someday it'll all make sense. No, no, no. If we belong to God, then that implies certain things about our lives. And John is now going to tell us what they are. If we belong to him, he says, moving on, He says, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. 
So if we are the offspring of God, we have been translated out of what we once were as citizens of this world. And now we are in the same class of being in God's family as Christ was. And therefore, we not only belong to him and will be treated like him, but we are called to be separate from this world. And so if you and I have been affected by the love of God and we belong to him, then we're called to be separate from the world that we live in. We're not to be a part of the world system. Now, two weeks ago, we studied back in chapter 2, verses 15 through 19, where John said, do not love the world. And John made a distinction between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, that at one time we were in darkness, but now are we light in the Lord. We've been translated. In Colossians chapter 1, The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and he said this, that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And so therefore, we are no longer a part of the world that we were once a part of prior to our salvation and our coming to Christ. And therefore, we're to live out what has been worked into our lives. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this emphatically. He says, for our conversation, and the word conversation means citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, present tense. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John says, because his love has been bestowed upon us and we belong to the Son of God, therefore, we are to be separate from this world. Not only are we to be separate from the world, but he goes on to tell us in verse 2 that uh, concerning our status. He says this, he says, beloved, now are we the sons of God? And it does not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John tells us two things concerning our standing in Christ in that verse. Number one is that we already are the sons of God. That is our current status. That when God looks at you, he sees that you are already in. He doesn't say that it's pending. He doesn't say the application is in and we'll see how things work out in the long run. But he says, no, no, no. You have accepted Christ as your savior and you are in. You are my son and you are my daughter. But at the same time, you and I, our status is that we're saved, that we're secure. We're not done yet. Do you see that? He says, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, that we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. Meaning that though our status before God is that we're already in, we are sons and daughters of his. While we are in this world, there's a transformation process that's taking place in our life. Something that the Bible calls sanctification, where we're being changed from what we once were to what one day we're going to be. And it isn't until we're in his presence in eternity, that then we will see what it is that we've been called into. But it's a progress, a process, something that God is doing in, my, in our lives. Sometimes I have people in my office and they'll complain about um, a spouse or a boss or a friend or a child, you know, and they'll say, this person is just so not Christian, you know, in the way that they treat me, in the way that they deal with me and this, this whole thing. And how do I handle this? And oftentimes I'll ask the question, I'll say, well, let me just ask you this. Is that person saved? Do they know Jesus Christ? And if they say no, I say, well, then that's where we we go. We pray and we ask God to save that person. But oftentimes they'll also say, yes, they're born again. At least they profess to be born again, but you wouldn't know it based upon the way that they treat me at home. And so then typically what I'll do when someone asks me that or or says that to me is that I'll take two different things off of my desk, maybe a water bottle and a stapler, anything that's there. And I'll say, listen, this water bottle right here, this represents Jesus Christ, his image, his glory, his person. I know it's a terrible illustration, but, you know, just stretch for me for a moment. And then I'll say, this stapler over here represents your spouse, the one who's treating you so wickedly. And you're telling me that this stapler belongs to this water bottle. 
Well, here's what I know and what you need to know too is that when this stapler made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and said, yes, I want to be a co-heir with Christ, Jesus Christ at that moment made a commitment to turn that stapler into a water bottle. And he's not going to stop until he's done doing what he's doing. And so therefore, he's using the difficulty of this situation in your life or in my life to shape us, to change us, to teach us patience, to teach us unconditional love. And at the same time, he's using us to be an influence in that person's life. And we're called to forbear and forgive and wait while God finishes the work that he's doing. We are works in progress. We're not done yet. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. We just know that when he appears, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. And then comes our responsibility. He says in verse 3, He says, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so we have a responsibility in this sonship, this salvation that we have, to be being changed by God on a continual basis. It's our responsibility. It's what we're called into to allow him to affect this change within our lives. The love of God has been bestowed upon us in Christ. Therefore, we're to be separate from the world. We are sons, but we're not yet what we're going to be. And we're to be committed to the change that God wants to make within our life. All of those things are true for every single believer in Christ that exists within the world. Now, what John gives to us beginning in verse 4 and through the end of the chapter is he gives us two evidences that we are truly saved. Because he wants us to have assurance and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are truly saved. So what is the evidence that these things have taken place and are taking place within our lives. The first is given to us in verses 4 through 10, and that is that there will be an ever-growing absence of sin from our lives. Notice what he says. He says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, the word sin simply means to violate God's standard. God says, this is proper, this is holy, this is right. And if something is contrary to that, then that is called sin. It's missing the mark. That's what sin is. And so it's violating God's standard that he has for our lives. But you'll notice that the word John uses to define sin in this verse is the word transgression. And that's important. That's not just King James language. There are three words that are used in the original Greek that that are all translated the same word sin in the English. The first of those words is just the word sin. And what sin literally means is to miss the mark, meaning that I'm trying to do what's right, but I'm falling short. That's not the word that John uses here. The second word that's translated sin is the word iniquity. And the word iniquity means sin that I'm not even aware of. It just means uncleanness in a general sense or sins that happen in my life that I don't even know those things are sin. It's just a part of my nature. I haven't seen it yet. I don't even know about it. God hasn't revealed it as sin, but oh, it's there. That's iniquity. That's not the word that he uses. The third word that's translated sin is the word transgression. And the word transgression is or means that God draws a line in the sand and he looks us square in the face and he says, do not cross this line. And then we look him square in the face and take one giant step right over the line. It means purposeful sin that we've committed against God. That's what transgression means. And that's what he says here. He says that whoso is born of him or knows him and and transgresses, it says... Is, is in a bad place. Whosoever commits sin transgresses the law, for, lo- the, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know, he says, that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And so a person that can go on transgressing and continue sinning against God is in violation to the very terms of what it means to belong to the Son of God. In him is no sin, and he was manifested to take away our sins. So for us to say that, well, I'm just going to keep on sinning because Christ died and I don't have to stop is a contradiction of terms. And so therefore, John says this in verse 6. 
He says, whosoever abides in him sinneth not or doesn't transgress. And whosoever sins or transgresses has not seen him, neither known him. Now, the context of what John is saying here is not that none of us make a mistake. He already said that it does not yet appear what we shall be. He said back in chapter 1, he said that if any man says that he has no sin, that he's deceiving himself and he's a liar and the truth is not in us. That's not the context that we never slip up or make a mistake. But here is the idea, and I pray that these words get in because for some it needs to get in. Listen, is that if you can live in habitual sin and transgression, openly disobeying the things that God says are wrong, and thinking that cheap grace is just going to cover it because Jesus died for my sins, then what that is is an evidence that you are not truly saved. Because what John is declaring to us by the Spirit of God is that when the Spirit dwells in us, that can happen. Now, if you are saved, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember as an early Christian, as a young believer, you know, I had all the same struggles of every young man. You know, I was out with my friends on the weekends. I was doing all kinds of things I shouldn't do. And the moment I got saved and light came into my life, I knew the first three things that were on the chopping block that were going to have to go within my life. The Spirit of God just shined right on those things, and I knew that they were going to go. And every time I stumbled in one of those areas, the torment and the guilt and the conscious the roaring that was inside was so loud that I had to be free of those things. It was more of a misery to commit those sins than it was to not commit them any longer because there was a new master inside. There was a new light within my life. And so I began to cry out to God, God, set me free from these things. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live this way. I know it's wrong and I want to be saved. I believe in you and I believe in your kingdom and I don't want this world anymore. And that was the drive that was in me. It was such a drastic change from what I had once been. And if you know that wrestling match, then that's a sure evidence and sign that the Spirit of God is in you and that you're saved. But if, on the contrary, you don't. And for you, it's not turning away from sin, but rather it's just hiding it, hoping that no one else finds out and you have no intent at all to change or to obey the things that he says, then you honestly need to question, are you truly saved? He says, little children, verse 7, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. We ought to be growing closer in our likeness to Jesus Christ. And if we're not, then we need to question where we truly stand. For he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so therefore, if I continue living in the devil's world and living according to the devil's ideals, then I'm truly not saved because Jesus was manifested that he might destroy those works. And one thing that he's going to do in my life is that he's going to destroy those works. And I'm called to let him do it. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin or transgression, for his seed, that is the seed of Christ, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. There is a disallowance of the Spirit of God in my life to allow me to keep on sinning. When he brings something to the light and to the surface, that sin is on the chopping block. It's going to go. We studied recently on Saturday morning the sin of David and Bathsheba, and it just happens to be where I'm at with my kids in, in our uh, nightly devotions, at least my older kids. We kind of skip those chapters with the young, young ones, you know, David and Bathsheba and all, but with the older ones, we're kind of at that stage of their life where these things are real. And, and so just a couple of nights ago, we were studying um, 1 Samuel chapter 11 when David first falls into the sin with Bathsheba. And he, he, he kind of blows through the roadblocks. God says, hey, this is the wife of Uriah. But he keeps going anyway and, and pers per pursues on. And then she comes to his house and he sleeps with her. And then he sends her home and he thinks that it's all done, that everything's been packaged up all neatly, that this was a one and done and I got away with it and the whole thing. And, and, and you could almost read, and then the next verse tells you that she sends a, a message to him, it had to have been a few weeks or a month later, that she was with child. And you think that, well, for a whole month, David thought he got away with something. For a whole month, David just went on with his life, 
And all was good. There was no problems, no issues. Nuh-uh. When you read Psalm chapter 32 and you read Psalm chapter 51, David describes what was going on inside where no one else could see during that whole time that he was living in that, with that in his conscience, that unrepented of sin. He says that his bones dried up like a piece of clay. He says that his strength left him, that he was completely weak. All of his vitality was gone from him. All of his joy, his peace. He says that my pillow became the bottle for my tears because I couldn't stop the grief in the morning that was going on in my heart. That's what happens when a child of God transgresses. And if you can transgress against God and you can disobey your conscience and put that voice down and continue on going in that, without any regard for the Spirit's conviction in your life, then you need to question whether or not you have truly been born again or are you simply just playing church. He said in verse 10, In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And so John's first point to us tonight in terms of helping us to be assured that we're in the faith or that we would question whether or not we really are, is he says, what is your relationship with sin? Can you continue and persist on in sin without conviction? Because if so, you shouldn't be sure. The second evidence that we are truly saved is the relationship that we have with one another in the body of Christ. He says, neither he that loveth not his brother... And then he moves into that vein in verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, when you study John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, the bulk of the red letters there in John's gospel, it begins with Jesus washing feet. And as he washes their feet, he says, If I, your Lord and Master, have so done this for you, then this is what you ought to do also for one another. And then no less than three, four, or five times in the ensuing chapters, he says, love one another. You're to love one another. You're to watch each other's backs. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed. The whole chapter is just Jesus' prayer. And he prays five times in that prayer that his people would be one, that there would be a unity in the body of Christ. And it's absolutely the will of God and the desire of God that we would be unified and that we would love one another. And that's the message that we've heard from the beginning. And one of the evidences that the Spirit of God is at work in my life is going to come out in my love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, he contrasts that in verse 12 with Cain. He says, And not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother Abel. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. And so now he grabs a hold of this picture, the story from the Old Testament, the offspring of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And he highlights the fact that Cain, in his bitter jealousy and in his desire to be blessed, in a blessing that he could not obtain because he was self-righteous and envious, he killed his brother. He wanted God's blessing, but he didn't want God in his life. And he says that any one of us that have that same mentality. We're self-righteous and we think we're better than someone else. That was Cain's mentality. Cain brought to God the works of his hands. He was a gardener. And he brought the very best of his fruits and vegetables to God. Now that's not easy to do. Any of you who've grown a garden and have cultivated good fruit, you know the work that goes into that. But God refused the offering because it wasn't the offering God asked for. Abel simply brought a lamb from his flock. That takes very little work, very little effort. You put two healthy sheep in a pen and you're going to come up with one of those. And that's what he brought. He just brought, hey, this is a perfect lamb. It's a nice one. I'm going to give it to God. And it says that God had respect to Abel's offering and he despised or rejected Cain's. And Cain looked at that and he said, but I'm holier than he is. I worked harder for God than he did. I do more for God than he does for God. Why would God show favor to his offering and show disregard and disdain for mine? He was self-righteous. He thought that there was something that he could actually bring to God that would commend his character to God. No, no, no. The Bible says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. The only thing that any one of us can ever bring to God as an offering is an offering of the blood of Jesus Christ that he has provided for us on our behalf. 
That's why John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's our offering. God, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That's our plea when we come before him. He doesn't respect our works. But if we're self-righteous, then what we do is we try to earn God's favor with our religious workings, and then we compare ourselves with everyone else. And we try to outdo them. God, you've got to love and bless me more than them because you've seen what I've done for you. This was my mentality as a young Christian for such a long time. I didn't understand grace. I thought I had to earn God's favor. And so I made promises to God, and I tried to perform those promises. But over and over again, I fell short of keeping those promises. I couldn't read the Bible enough. I couldn't pray enough. I couldn't attend enough services. I couldn't share with enough people. No matter what, somehow I always fell short, and somehow God's blessing was so elusive. And then I got so tired of trying to please God that I just gave up, and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. And God said, good. Now we can start to just relate to one another in the work that I've performed for you through my son, and you can let my spirit work out your salvation in my progress in my time. And the blessing of God began to flow within my life when it was no longer I doing the works, but allowing Christ to do the works through me and in me, the offering of his son. And so if I'm self-righteous and I'm comparing myself with others, then I'm more a reflection of Cain than I am of Abel. If I'm jealous of the blessing of God in someone else's life, well, God, I know I'm holier than they are, and I do more than they do, but they're blessed, and I'm not. And what gives? God, you've seen it all that I've done. When is it going to be my turn, God? And God looks at that, and he says, you're missing the point absolutely and completely. Now, I am a blessing dad. I love seeing my kids blessed. I want them to all be blessed. I have five of them. I cannot possibly bless my kids in the manner that I want to bless all of my kids. But from time to time, something comes up, something happens, wherein I'm able to bless one of them over and above the others. You know, they come to the age where it's time for a new bike, and so they get a bike for Christmas, and everyone else just gets flashlights. <laughs> but one of the things that I'm aware of in all of that is I'm aware of the inequality as a good blessing dad. I realize and I take notice of the fact that this one got a bike and everyone else didn't get a bike. Now, I don't tell them that. I don't come and say, no, you're trying to come and the whole thing. I just do it as a dad because it's this one's turn. And then I watch and see what happens. You know what I'm watching for? I'm watching two things. First thing I'm watching is I'm watching how this one reacts, the one that got the bike, towards all the others that didn't get such a big gift. It's like, oh. I'm obviously the favorite. <laughs> Look what I got. Enjoy those Fig Newtons, you know. And they, and they just kind of go on with the whole thing. I watch that as a dad. I want to know, well, is this, how are they going to react to the fact that they obviously got something that all the others didn't get? Sometimes it's not even Christmas or a birthday. Sometimes it's just the timing of things. And one gets blessed beyond the other. It just happened. One of my kids got blessed. And so I watch. How do they react? Then I watch the others and what I want to see, what I'm looking for in them, is how they react to the fact that everyone in the room knows that this one got better and more than everybody else. And what am I looking for as a blessing dad? First of all, I realize the inequality of it. And I know as their dad that their time is going to come and that everything is going to equal out. It's going to be perfect. But are they going to rejoice with the one that was blessed or are they going to react with envy and disdain? And you know what? that has an effect on the timing of what comes their way and the way that they are treated. Now that's in the human realm and I'm an imperfect parent. God is a blessing God. And when one of us gets blessed in a way that's above and beyond what everyone else is experiencing in a season or in a time, God knows the inequality of that or the perceived inequality. God knows what each of us wants and desires and needs. And God has a time for every one of us. But God is watching. What's he watching? He's watching when I'm blessed, how do I respond to that blessing? Well, I am obviously a few notches above and beyond where you are in the Christian faith. Can I give you a hint? If God pours out a blessing on your life and you respond that way, just this is what you can do to your blessing. You can say, bye-bye. But when I walk humbly with God and I say, God, you're so good and I don't deserve what you've done for me, 
And your goodness just overwhelms me over and over and over again. And I don't know how to comprehend what you've done for me, and I don't know why, and I know that I don't deserve it. But help me to be a light and a reflection of you in all the things that you do in my life. That pleases the heart of God. Because I'm not responding with pride, thinking that I'm something. I'm responding with humility, knowing that I'm nothing. God also watches me when someone else gets blessed. And he wants to see my reaction. God, why? They, they, get, they get Hawaii? They get to pastor there? And I'm in the north? No. He watches. Well, Lord, I deserve that. That's supposed to, you know how long? And you know this whole thing. He watches. But I'm so much better than they are, God. And I would do such a, you know, and we start, and he watches that. Do we rejoice with those that are blessed or do we not? John says one of the evidences that we're saved is when we see someone else in the body of Christ being elevated, that our hearts rejoice with them because they're rejoicing. And that we don't look at ourselves as anything better than anyone else, but that we look on them with glory in our hearts, desiring that they would be elevated and prosperous. He says, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. For we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. It's a reference to the fact that Cain hated Abel. He was hated because of his faith. And we're going to be hated for our faith if we're walking with him. But it says that we know that we've passed from death to life. And here's how we know. Because we love the brethren. And he that loves not his brother abides in death. So if my attitude towards other people in the body of Christ is envy, disdain, hatred, and self-righteousness, then that's a sign that I am not filled with the Spirit of God. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Did you know that the root sin that results in murder is hatred and anger? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, You have read or heard that it's been said of old, you shall not kill. Remember that? And then Jesus took it a step further, and he said, but I say unto you that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. You say, what gives? How can anger equal murder? They're two totally different things and on totally separate scales. Well, here's the idea, is that you cannot possibly murder someone until you're first angry with them. And so the root cause of murder is anger. And so what Jesus, or John rather here, is saying to us in this is he's saying that if we are jealous or angry, um, why, where am I? You're like, we've been wondering that all night. <laughs> it's, the verse splits two pages, okay? I've got a straddled verse. That's where I got lost. He said, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if you have hatred towards someone else in the body of Christ, in the family of believers, then God looks at that equal to the sin of murder. And hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. In other words, with the same measure or way in which we quantify or qualify God's love, that's the kind of love that we're to have towards others. Which means that our love towards our brothers and sisters is to be unconditional. It's to be sacrificial. It's to be loyal, and it's to be intimate. That's the way that we're to deal. We're not to tolerate other Christians. We're to love other Christians. But contrary to that, verse 17, whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels or his heart of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So the second evidence that he gives whereby we can know that we are of the truth is by the love that we have towards other Christians in the body of Christ. For if our heart condemn us, and now we come to the conclusions, it says that God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Perhaps you're sitting here tonight and you think, okay, uh, fail, fail. I fail in the sin category. I fail in the love for my brothers and sisters category. What in the world does that mean? Or maybe you're sitting here and you say, okay, fail, pass. I'm not doing so good on the sin thing, but I do love people in the church, and I'm real thankful for my brothers and sisters, or pass, fail, or whatever your combination of things is. John says this. He says that if our hearts condemn us in this, then understand this, that God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. 
If you sit here tonight and you feel like a failure in your Christian life, what you need to know is, first of all, that what John is saying to us is that it's not too late. That the grace and goodness of God still extends towards you to where you could say, God, you know what? Your word tonight is showing me that I'm not walking in the way that I should be walking, and I desperately long to be, but I'm going to need a whole lot of help. Or God, I don't love people in the church the way that I'm supposed to love people in the church, and I... I, I, I'm condemned if I am measured by that standard. I'm more like Cain than I am like Abel. But God, I need you to forgive me and help me and cleanse me. And the Bible says that God is able to do that. He is greater than our hearts and the condition of our hearts. And so we can turn to him. The other side of this verse declares to us that even if we're failing because we're not where we should be, God is still greater if we're truly saved knowing that we will one day be where we want to be. Did you know that there's a big difference in the Christian world between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation happens when we feel like we're not even saved. It comes from the devil. He comes and he whispers in our ear, and he's so subtle and sly. You know what he says? The devil says, I'm so disappointed in you, my son or my daughter. I'm so sad with the way that you've behaved. I've done so much for you. Do you notice that he's speaking in the first person? And who is he impersonating? God. And he says, I would have saved you. And if only you would have known the things that would have been done for you if you had just been able to just be a little bit stronger and a little more self-controlled. But I'm, I'm sorry, but I just, I'm afraid I'm going to have to back off for a while. And we go, yeah, I know. I'm a failure, you know, I'm wretched, I, I know I'm so weak, I'm so sorry, God, please don't leave me. Do you know that that's condemnation and it's not of God? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk in the Spirit, we're filled with the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Now, conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in me and I fall short in a sin, and the Spirit of God dries me up, and begins to reprove me, and the guilt weighs upon my conscience, and I can't remain in that sin. That's conviction. And conviction doesn't drive me away from God. Conviction draws me to God. It brings me to the place where I have boldness and confidence to repent of my sins and to turn to Him for grace and forgiveness. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation comes from the devil. So if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, verse 21, then we have confidence towards God. If you could sit here tonight and you could say, man, Lord, thank you. You know what? I, I know that I'm saved because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I know that I love the body of Christ, even if sometimes they drive me crazy. Lord, underneath all of that, I know that there's love. Then the Bible says that our hearts assure us we have confidence towards God, and it emboldens our prayer. Verse 22, he says, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. It boils down to two things. That we would believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And number two, that we would love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, faith or belief in Jesus Christ is always linked to righteousness. In John chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes into your life, that he's going to convict the world of sin. And then he says, of sin because they believe not on me. Belief and sin, or belief and righteousness, always go hand in hand. Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, it says that he believed in the Lord, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. For it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And so when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him, our sins are washed away. And so by believing in Christ and professing faith in him, our sin is done away and therefore the spirit of God comes into our life. And so this is his command, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we should love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keeps his commandments dwells in him and he in him, and hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which He has given to us. So this is His command, that we are to believe and that we are to love. And we will, as a byproduct of that, be walking with Him, walking in His Spirit. 
And so what John has done for us tonight as we conclude our chapter, and the musicians can come as we close our service tonight, what John has just done is he has held up two things, very simple, before you and I, to either assure our hearts and say, Lord, yes, I really am in you. There is a work of your spirit in me. There's a change and a transformation that's happening in my life. There's a conviction and a response to that conviction. And although I'm not perfect, and although I still stumble, and sometimes I even stumble in big ways, when I think back to the early days and I think about the progress that I've made and the things that have changed in me, God, I know that you're working in me. You've done things in my life that I tried to do in my life and I could not do. And our hearts assure us. On the contrary, we've already said, are we walking with him? Do we take sin seriously? Do we wink at it and hide it? Or do we confess it and repent of it? Do we love one another? Or do we envy? Are we judging? Do we lift ourselves above and say, well, if you were as good as me and disdain others when God's blessing falls upon their life, this is serious stuff. And it marks our salvation. And John wouldn't have any of us self-deceived into thinking that we're saved when we're not. He that practices sin does not know him, neither he that loveth not his brother. God, give us wisdom. God, give us understanding. God, give us righteousness. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we have heard these things and we have allowed you to search our hearts, we pray, Father, that you would make your counsels known and that you would show us our position and our status. And, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you yet personally, I would pray in Jesus' name that they would be able to consider and comprehend what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And I pray that they would respond accordingly. And, Lord, I pray for some here tonight that may be self-deceived, walking in sin yet thinking they're saved. How I pray, Lord, for them tonight that they wouldn't come to the end of the line, stand before you, and hear you say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. And, Father, I pray for the one whose heart is confident, who knows, who's walking in the light, who's walking in righteousness, that's loving their brother. Oh, God, please, would you pour out your spirit upon them and upon us. Lord, we lay everything open before you. We thank you for your truth. And we ask you, Lord, to deal with us now. And even as we sing this last song, Father, I pray that your spirit would convict, confirm, enter in, transform, and change. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.